welcome to this month's edition of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host Paula Wiseman and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with writer, comedian, actor and podcaster Alex Lowe. So hey Alex, it's great to be chatting with you today. Great to be on here, lovely to speak to you. Thank you. So normally I start off by talking about childhood and what you were like as a kid, whether you're a funny kid, but you were actually a, a child actor. So I mean how did that all start initially? Well, I um, I grew up in Pinner in northwest London, very sort of lovely, uh, middle classy childhood. My parents were my dad was a sort of semi professional saxophonist, uh, and my mum worked for Harrow Council for um, the social services. And I think from about the age of 11, I wanted to go to there's a place in Pinner called the Studio School, which was a very sort of serious drama school. It wasn't a sort of drama club or, a, you know, sort of arsing around. It was very serious. It was run by two women who used to teach at the Guildhall. They'd had some very sort of well-known actors in their time who they taught before, and they had some very good actors who sort of went through the studio school in Pinner. And I used to do duologue lessons, you know, with someone else, and I would do, you know, my private lessons and go in and do group lessons. And it was just, I suppose, one of those things, it was a sort of a hobby, just like anyone might be going to piano or swimming or whatever. But I really wanted to be an actor. And I was a little bit of a kind of show off and I used to do impressions <laughs> and play the piano. My brother and I, we came second in the 1979 Wolves Cornetto Junior Talent Contest. <laughs> uh, which, uh, so we were sort of really into comedy. It was you know, some families, I don't know, my dad always kind of thought comedy was a valuable art form. And there was no snobbery about that. You know, he used to take us to sort of see people like Mike Yarwood and uh, the two Ronnies. Oh, wow. And, you know, West End shows. I remember going to see Billy Lyre starring um, Michael Crawford and this sort of thing. So um, this is a rather long answer. But anyway, the point is, uh, I, I came, went to this drama school and I joined an agent who was attached to that drama school. And I just went up for various jobs and, and I got a job in something called Theatre Box, which was an ITV kids drama one Christmas when I was about 13. And then I did Another Country, the play Another Country, which then became the film with Kenneth Branagh and, um, it wasn't with Kenneth Branagh, the plays with Kenneth Branagh and Rupert Everett, but the film was with Colin Firth and uh, Rupert Everett. And so I did this play in the West End for a long time when I was 14. And I did um, Mansfield Park for the BBC when I was 15 in 1983. And actually, so, you know, I've really done nothing else but be an actor all my life, thankfully, yeah. so far. Uh, but, I, you know, my parents, they were not really very sort of theatrical types. They thought it was a sort of flash in the pan hobby that I would do for a while. But I was very very dedicated and uh, it's the only thing I've ever really wanted to do and to this day I mean I honestly I thank my lucky stars that I'm allowed to do it it's just thrilling to be able to do what is this sounds a bit pretentious but what is a very natural thing for anyone to do yeah. which is you know kids play in the playground and invent things and take on character it's an absolute honor at 53 to still be allowed to do it 
that's a very long answer but yeah that's no that's what we want that's what we want so the, the comedy aspect of it obviously it's a big part of your life now I mean yes. was so was that a natural progression from the acting or did it kind of just happen just happen um, naturally would you do impressions and stuff when you were a kid um, or yeah we I used to do a lot of impressions you know the sort of impressions that everyone did at that time my you know Frank Spencer <laughs> yes. um you know Tommy Cooper whatever yeah, I used to do a lot of impressions, and I, I mean, as a kid, the only badge I ever got at Cubs was the was the performance badge, the entertainer's <laughs> badge. Just had one badge there, and I used to do a a thing where you know at Cubs very often for the last half an hour of Cubs, it would be the Alex Lowe show where I get on the stage, <laughs> something I'd written, and people would be sort of joining in, and we'd maybe have a little bit of a rehearsal. And, you know, at our church, the Methodist church in Pinner, we would, um, there would be sort of family things. I mean, it sounds, we weren't very religious, but, you know, there'd be like a family Christmas show yeah, or yeah. something, which very often would feature Alex Lowe's latest <laughs> production. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did a lot of that sort of thing, but but I became quite a, a serious actor. You know, I just wanted to act, but but comedy, I think, actually doing... As, as a profession, comedy, only I only really got stuck into that when I was about 30, just because I wanted to go to Edinburgh and make things happen. And that seemed the thing I was most comfortable with. And I think sort of now, if I'm known, if I'm known for anything, if anyone's remotely interested, I'm probably known as a sort of comedy actor, comic actor, rather than uh, anything else. But, you know, I've never... You can't really be too choosy. I'm very happy to work in anything, you know not do a serious play you know because yeah. I'm a comic actor yeah I think you've got to be quite extrovert as well haven't you to do what you do um I think you have to be extrovert yeah I suppose so but I mean I don't think if I just went out and started showing off <laughs> yes. I think uh, that <laughs> would be very tiresome for everyone I think I would have the common sense to know that that's not the point Sam Delaney who is he I've worked with him quite a lot and he's a, a presenter and a, a comedy writer and uh, used to be the editor of Heat magazine he was telling me the other day about when he was at school and he wanted to be an actor and he just thought it was just a question of showing off and he very quickly realised oh hold on there are other people in the school <laughs> who are, have actually learned lines and they can actually do it so I think uh, yeah just 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 wanting to show off would be very boring after a while for people yeah I mean so a lot of people listening will probably know you best for being Barry from Watford and of course yes. psychic extraordinaire Clinton Baptiste um so let's talk a bit about Barry so where did he come from originally was he a voice initially that kind of became something more tangible how did uh, it all start well my um all my elderly relatives were from southeast London. They're sort of greengrocers, and some of them were night watchmen, you know, carrying a light on the on the Thames, Bermondsey, Deptford, around there. And then during the war, there was a move to get these people out of quite a dangerous area for the Blitz. And I think they moved to they moved to South Harrow in the suburbs near where I am now. And um, so I just always grew up with that sort of old style Cockney. You know, and they all was quite old when I first met them, you know. And they had that terrible thing where the esophagus sort of drops at the back of the throat. Um, 
but lovely, lovely people. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know that many of them. You know, a lot of them had died before I was aware of them. But there was sort of my old aunt and my old nan. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of old aunts and nans and, and what have you. And um, so it's sort of based on them, really. But it's affectionate. I would never, you know, Barry has a certain pride. I would never insult these people. I've, I've got, you know, a lot of respect for them. So that's really where it comes from. My old nan, a combination of my nan and my great aunt. Yeah. So how did the prosthetic aspect of Barry come into being? Well, I mean, nowadays, I wish I'd never done that because it's a <laughs> rod to my own back. You know, when you see people like Mrs. Merton and Count Arthur Strong and these people, they don't bother with that. And, and I don't know why I thought it was such a good idea to do that. And it has become a bit of a look for Barry, uh, which I'm trying to take away. But um, uh, I tell you how I did uh, an advert. You might remember many years ago, some people might remember it was it was on quite a lot dry a uh, blackthorn dry blackthorn cider where we were aliens and we drunk out of the pint pots with our fingers yeah and we yeah yeah these sort of cone heads well the guy who does the prosthetics did the prosthetics is a very well-known prosthetic expert and he was a pioneer in that stuff called Aaron Sherman and he lives out in Chingford and I just you know we sort of hit it off when we did this advert and not long after that, when I was 30, I did a show in Edinburgh about British wrestling and I wanted him to make a big giant haystacks head so I could play <laughs> giant haystacks, shove it on my head, yeah. which he did. So that when I wanted to do Barry, I, I went to him and he very, very kindly, because it's a hell of a lot of work for him. He very kindly made me this thing. I think he'd heard me on LBC on Ian Lee's show. Yeah. And he agreed to do it and he really did it for not very much money. And he's, he's often... <laughs> you know, providing me with this prosthetic for, at cost price. But he's a great mate of mine nowadays. So that's how it happened. He taught me how to put it on and you add part A and part B of the glue and then you sort of have this sort of moulding stuff that puts it onto your face so you yeah. can't see the join, which I learnt very quickly. I mean, I often think if he could see the way I do it hurriedly above a pub, about to go stage, <laughs> he would have a fit because... I'm sure, you know, my handiwork is not nearly good enough. But as I say, I'm trying as I get older now. I need the mask less and less. So uh, I might just try and jettison yeah. it and just be Barry. I still have the teeth and the wig, you know. Yeah, I suppose it's a way of keeping yourself separate and Barry as a separate yeah. ent entity. I think really, you know, I find getting on stage so frightening. I mean, I really, really, I get very, very nervous I don't know why. I don't know why. Even to this day, I find it terrifying. I feel sick and I think, why am I doing this? And so it is like a lot of actors and any performers, even if it's not a physical mask, you sort of psychologically put something else on to go on stage so you don't get hurt. And it's it's really nice to hide behind and you have glasses and a wig and yeah. funny teeth and you... Uh, and of course, if you died on your ass at a gig, no one knows it's you when you're leaving, which is the lovely <laughs> thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, but what I did find is actually when you go and speak to the audience and stand up, people love you to actually engage with them. That's the sort of difference. Sometimes you find people don't really like that. They like the artifice to watch you. But if Barry leans in with that horrible prosthetic, 
I find people, they're either frightened or they kind of go, oh, I don't <laughs> want to spoil the illusion, you know. So um, that's it, Aaron, really. I have him to thank for that look. Yeah, I mean, that's the nice thing about Barry. He's got a, a, a whole backstory, being a greengrocer, and obviously the lovely Margaret, who we, yes. hear, we hear so much about on the podcast. But, you know, that's it's cool. like he, you and Margaret have kind of, well, not you and Margaret, Barry and Margaret, obviously, mm. have, have kind of evolved over the years. You know, it's been like a, a saga. Well, the, I mean, initially, Catherine Tate actually played Margaret on, yeah. on an LBC call. I mean, I've known her for some years and she just agreed to do it. Because she is very, very accurate, I think, with that character. It's so bloody accurate, that lovely turn of phrase. <laughs> yes. And that, that, you know, it's sort of, oh, God, I can't explain it. But it, that really, when I hear that, reminds me of some of those old Cockney ding-dongs I used to know. Um, but I have to say, I've probably been very, very cheeky with Margaret because I do this podcast with Dan Skinner, Angelos and Barry, yeah. which is sort of, it's a version of Barry. It's not really the lovely, cuddly Barry. We know. <laughs> no, it it's isn't. a bit like Derek and Clive, you know. It really when, is. Yeah. Yeah. When you're allowed to, it's just a conduit from for our filthy ramblings. So I always think there's a sort of there's a sort of mainstream Barry, and then there's the Alex Lowe version of Barry. <laughs> Poor Talking Margaret of, comes in for a pounding, oh, that's what I was oh, going to say. Poor yeah. Margaret, poor yeah, Margaret. Yeah, go on. Um, so how did the partnership, talking about Dan, uh, Dan stroke Angelos there. So how yeah. did you meet, how did you meet Dan originally? Well, I think, you know, we'd been in, I, I seem to remember we were in some Channel 4 thing and I knew him vaguely from that. And then he came to perform at the 100 Club where I do my Barry from Watford Barry's Bingo, which I used to do and I really want to do again one day. And just because we really needed someone who was a great, it seemed to suit a really funny comic character that evening. It wasn't just straight stand up. It was something slightly wild and grotesque about what was happening on the stage. And so Dan came along and did Angelos. And then someone asked me to do a radio show on FUBAR, which is an, an internet radio station. And I tried various things, just as Barry, it was like, you know, you want someone to bounce off a bit. And I tried a couple of people to come in. And then I thought, of course, why not have Angelos? And we started doing this thing. And then they ended up owe owing us a fortune. They just didn't pay us for weeks on end. So we went, sod it, let's go and do it ourselves. And we just started doing this podcast, which I suppose we've been doing, must be seven years off and on now. And we, we moved companies and we now do it for Great Big Owl. Uh, and it's just, a ch I mean, that is the case in point. Being allowed to sit around with your mate, making this stuff up. And, and, and we don't really earn very much money, but there's a tiny bit of money. It's a pretty, you think, God, what a way to earn a living. I always think there are people doing triple heart bypass surgery as we speak. And there's us <laughs> saying, my Margaret went to the toilet. And, you know, so pathetic. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of smut in the, uh, in yeah, the podcast. Yeah, there is a lot of smut. I think, you know, when people say, oh, well, you know, it's very blue and all that. <laughs> I think, you know, it's like cartoon smut. It's not, when you see Peter Cook and that horrible misogynistic stuff from Derek and Clive, you yeah. go, well, we're not doing that. It's sort of, it's really schoolboyish and yeah. sort of silly. I would hate anyone to be offended. I mean, it's... It is a bit rude, but I oh mean, God, it, 
I, I think there's a lot worse out there. It's not drill, is it? I mean, it's not talking <laughs> about stabbing people. It's it's two silly men talking about really childish things. And and I think it, it's it's funny. It's kind of inventive. I don't think it's just wallowing in scatological stuff. I think there's some funny stuff with it. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is all it is. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's one of those podcasts you can listen to episodes over and over again. Oh, you good. Know, my favourite is yeah. the one where uh, Margaret loses her head and gets a ping pong ball. Yeah, that's on. one oh, of my favourites. It's a classic. I don't know why I was laughing so much. That day. It just really <laughs> made me laugh. I mean, the thing is, Dan Skinner makes me laugh so much. I mean, he is so bloody funny. And we just, before I spoke to you this morning, he just did something on my Clinton Baptiste podcast. And I just said to my wife, I can't keep asking. I'm always asking Dan to do stuff for me. And he's a great mate of mine. But, you know, if you want a job done properly, yeah. ask Dan, because he's so funny. He's such a brilliant actor. And I always think with, with Angelos, it's just, you know, tiny little things are always what make it for me. Little turns of phrase or little things in his voice. I, you know, it's so funny. He's a brilliant actor. Yeah, you definitely bounce off one another, and just like when you when you lose it and you go into you know you just start laughing. God, it's just ah, oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> we love it. We well, love it. Alex. He genuinely makes me laugh. You know, he he's such a funny fella. I mean, in real life, I mean, we do spend all day texting each other with funny things and little stupid in jokes so yeah, yeah poor old kim, kim woodburn at the moment's taking a bit of a hammering <laughs> oh God, yeah, i know but even even that i like to think these are sort of cartoon versions you know it's just a sort of yeah well i hope no one's upset by it yeah oh. no well no it's just what we need you know at the moment good just to, good to, good we're locked down so we've got to talk about yeah, cheap 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 or cheap 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 as uh barry calls it with noel edmonds mm. a few years ago everyone loved it like it was it was so anarchic i mean why did you why do you think there was no second did series? everyone love it i don't uh, think anyone loved it did they we all, well, we all loved it we, we all loved it my mum didn't know what was going on but um uh, yeah, yeah, this was a, a TV show I did with Noel Edmonds about four years ago yeah. uh, for Channel 4, uh, Hattrick. And I really thought, like so many times in my ridiculous career, it was about to launch something huge. You know, I've had films that were about to take off and be huge. I've had HBO pilot I did with Steve Coogan and Justin Theroux, I thought was going to absolutely launch so many things <laughs> so many near misses and this was one of them and it was um it was a, a game show called cheap 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 and it was a sort of game show meets sitcom where barry from watford was the sort of warehouse manager had some other really great um comedy actors other really great it had some great comedy actors uh improvisers but i just think it's we didn't have enough time to rehearse. We didn't have enough money for writers incessantly writing, mm. you know, cover 30 hours of television yeah. and just hope for the best was a little bit tricky. Um, having said that it had a lot of potential. If, if, if we'd have kept going, you know, I like all these things, if we'd had another go and they'd given us a second series, there'd been, there's so much learned from the first series. And, um, 
I just think it could have been really funny and I, I really enjoyed it. I loved doing it. I was absolutely gutted when nothing happened with it. But it sort of came and went and it was, it was unfortunate because it also went out in the summer where no one saw it. <laughs> and I was told by uh, Channel 4, oh no, there's never ever a downtime now. It's not like the old days. Anyone can watch anything at any time. You can watch it on the iPlayer or whatever. Yeah. And there's no such thing as downtime. We haven't released this in the middle of summer because they don't like it. I don't know whether they did or they didn't, but it, it just came and went. And it was it was a choker, really. Because, yeah. you know, I think mums, or I say mums, it's not being sexist, people, parents picking up their kids would have liked it. Yeah. Uh, but it was sort of at a time when they weren't doing that, or it was inconvenient. I think it was like three o'clock, just when mm. people would be going out to get their kids. I think it was July it started. And then there was no students around. It would have been very kitschy amongst the students. And it just seemed to be the scheduling let it down as well. But yeah, well, it was a great concept though, wasn't it? Such a really yeah. great concept. Yeah, I really loved it. And it was just, I mean, I'd, oh, I'd love to do it again. And, you know, after a while, you just, your confidence builds up. You do 30 hours of something. By the end of it, I thought it was cooking really nicely. So what do I know? I don't yeah. think anyone wants it now. I don't know. I've still got images of uh, Barry in a mankini, which uh, haunt my dreams. You lucky thing. You lucky thing. I can send you the... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was funny, wasn't it? <laughs> oh dear so let's let's talk about clinton now um mm. so i mean how much input into his creation did you have or did peter k give you him fully formed how did it all kind of work well uh clinton baptiste you know it's a character from peter k's phoenix knights uh no i would like to say that uh i invented it i didn't i think um neil fitzmorris came up with the name he and peter wrote it with dave Sp spiky uh no i mean i just got a phone call one day from peter k saying have i got a part for you <laughs> and he and he was a great part because bloody 22 years later i'm still talking about it 22 20 years later um so it, it was i mean i think i sort of had a contribution in the on the day filming i threw in a few lines and peter said just improvise a bit so i like to think i'm responsible for some of those turn into catchphrases now people shout at me you gotta be cruel to be kind don't shoot the messenger all that stuff so that was just from improvising on the day so i'm glad i feel i did have a little bit of input but honestly no it's entirely their creation as a as a concept as a look and i think it's probably obviously based on uh derek Cora. yeah but yeah. um nowadays i've built up a history for clinton and Peter Kay has just been very, very kind and he lets me do it. I do always check in with him. I don't, I don't just sort of carry on doing it. I'd, I'd hate for him to pull the plug on a bloody thing. Um, so I'm careful to sort of tell him what I'm up to. And um, <laughs> so far, touch wood, touch wood. He, yeah. he, he's, he's quite happy for me to carry on with it. Yeah. I mean, he, he's doing amazing things, isn't he, Clinton, at the moment? Yeah, obviously the podcast did amazingly well. And then yeah. the tour, the tour obviously has kind of been rescheduled for, yes. you know, once, once uh, we're out of, uh, but people love him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is going well. I'm, I'm really delighted. I was so gutted that the tour stopped halfway through, you know, we were doing um, a tour all around the country and it was selling ridiculous amounts of tickets. I mean, really just took me by surprise. And 
I mean, it was too good to be true. And I thought, how, you know, I just want to do this for the rest of my career. Yeah. I just thought, at last, all these years of piloting this and having this idea and doing a couple of days on a TV here, there and everywhere. And as I say, so many near misses with things that were about to take off. Um, I thought, this is all I want to do now. You know, what could be better than being on stage with, it's not my creation, but it was my writing and my interpretation. Yeah. And people complain about staying in hotels. Who doesn't? I love staying in hotels. <laughs> I mean, they cook your breakfast for a kickoff. home, yeah. Yeah. And I was loving all that. And I was in traveling up and down the country with my stage manager, Alex, who was a lovely guy. We got on like a house on fire and suddenly it stopped like that. Yeah. And then it got postponed, then it got postponed again. And now we're going out in the autumn and I've, and I've, I've got a new show to do. So I've, I've, those people who had tickets to the old show are going to see a new, bigger, better show. And luckily everyone seems happy to hold on to their tickets. So I, it is going well for Clinton and the podcast seems to do well. And I do a live show on a Thursday sort of every other Thursday um but yeah I just don't I don't hope people don't get sick of it you know just yeah I want I want people to enjoy it for you a long put, time yeah put new and improved across the posters you know? it, well exactly yeah well luckily the poster is all it's a different design and it's obviously a different show so yeah I mean is that part of it as well you know um putting on the wigs and the, doing the makeup and stuff obviously Barry and Clinton mm. are both kind of connected in that respect but they, mm. they're both you know, uh, they hide you as a performer. Yes. You And you were what? talking about your nerves. You're nervous going on stage and stuff. Does that kind of help a little bit? Because you're not it going does. out as yourself. No, it really does. Uh, Dan Skinner was talking about, I mean, occasionally if we're sitting in some green room about to go on in some pub or art centre or whatever it is, comedy club, I'll often text him going, oh, I'm not feeling this. I feel sick, you know, and he will do the same with me because you're sort of, well, let's say a third of it. I don't know, difficult to put a figure on it, but a lot of it is to do with the persona. Mm. It's not just about being a regular stand-up with a lot of great gags. You know, yeah. you've got to, well, these people have got to buy into it quite quickly uh, with Angelos and Clinton and Barry. So, Saying, you know, actually, you get on there and you bring that the full force of the energy of the character. Suddenly, you go, Oh, yeah, I remember now. This is what people like. But when you're sitting there looking at your script, thinking, God, this looks a bit thin, you know. Uh, so I think, I think the character brings a lot to it. And that's why I always yeah. think I'm much more of a, a character actor than I am a stand up. You know, it's, it's my thing is all about the sort of three dimensionality of the, the character. It's not just. You know, I was talking to my mate last night. I'm doing a bit of research because the new show is about Vegas and right. Clinton's been in Vegas. <laughs> and there's a friend of mine who lives out in the States and he is a, is a, is a stand-up and he goes up and down the country. But he's done lots of gigs in Vegas and I just wanted to ask him some questions about it. And he was saying the Americans don't really go for people dressing up and doing this character. Yeah. It's a very different difference in culture there and he said they want to know that there's a sort of inkling of truth in what you're saying and this artifice is not what they like so it strikes me it's a totally different thing in mm. britain 
we just coming from a totally different culture, which is about sort of pantomime and yeah, yeah. sort of larger than life stuff. So, um, so, you know, going up and down the country, it's, it's, it's a sort of uniquely British thing and it's a uniquely British way that I perform. I think, you know, you get weird clairvoyance all over the world, but that yeah. sort of end of the pier cheesy thing that I do is uniquely English, British. And I think people sort of pick up on that in this country. Yeah, that end of the pier comment made me think about Doris Stokes when she was uh, giving information to the, the government about the, for the lockdown was and stuff. She? Yeah, yeah. No, it was in the podcast. It's all right. It's just me being... Oh, I did. It's me being a geeky fan. Sorry. <laughs> what? Is this, this from Barry? Barry said that. Yeah, yeah. I there was that, um, end, end of the Pier psychic Doris Stokes was giving information to Chris Whitty a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I, I never listened back. I listened back once. And then... That's the thing, you know, people listen to them, you know, I, I yeah. say like the ping pong ball one, I think I've li- I must have listened to, you know, a dozen at least. Really? You, know, oh, you, good, you go back good. and you listen to them and they're, they're still just good. as funny. And that's the beauty of it as well. Um, I mean, talking about character comedy there. So it's been a it's been a big thing for a long time now, hasn't it? You know, you've got the likes of John Shuttleworth, Count Arthur, Arthur Strong, Angelos, obviously, Alan Partridge. So I don't know. Do you think it is a very British thing? People seem to uh, really associate and invest in these characters who they know are not real people. But um, is that what as a, a British, performer? Is it a British thing? What that people <laughs> like? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I can't think, I think of many American uh, people no. like character comedy. I suppose no, not not sort of larger than life in that way. I don't know. I think with any character comedy, I suppose the thing is, you what is really appealing is if there's a real nugget of truth in it. Mm. I think if I just came on as a pantomime dame and was, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not really good enough, is it? You've yeah. got to this. I mean. Barry Humphreys, you know, he's yeah. a sort of larger yeah. than life, um, you know, playing Dame Edna. But it's not, it's those little tiny, lovely turns of phrase. It's the little stuff that's so kind of exacting and precise in that sort of shell of this kind of artifice that's, mm. that's good, isn't it? I mean, that's what, I mean, when I, as I said about Dan, you know, it's a kind of grotesque this character <laughs> yes. plays. But what I love, for example, is when he plays uh, a different, this sounds very pretentious, but when he plays a different status, when he does Angelos, he's trying to be a little bit cool. (laughs) That is what's so lovely. You know, those little, that, the kind of precision of that. Yeah. Or, you know, I can't think, but, um, you know, when Clinton gets indignant or something and there's a little aside under his breath, you know, these lovely things that say so much about the character. Just coming on and doing a flouncy thing, which is, oh, no, I do, do you? <laughs> it's not, it's not that. It's the precision, I think. Yeah, we've got to mention Ramon as well, your nemesis. Ramon. Yeah, Lewis McLeod plays Ramon. I've He's just brilliant, been isn't he? He's such a great actor. Brilliant. Well, he, you know, Lewis McLeod, for anyone out there who doesn't know, is, I mean, he must be... I would say he's probably the best impression impressionist in the world. I don't know about other countries, but 
I can't believe there's anyone better in the world than him. He is brilliant and he does dead ringers and he does a lot of, I mean, I write a lot for him. We have a little bit of a, an understanding, me and Lewis, where I write material for him and he appears on my show. It's either that or pay him, which I'm not <laughs> going to do. So I is a, a quid pro quo. And he's just brilliant, Lou, and he's a great mate of mine. I'm always sort of, I mean, we did a thing today where he played Jon Snow, you know, the, the newsman. So brilliant, so accurate. And um, so Ramon, people like about Ramon this, this, this confrontation between him and Clinton, where they're both equally tacky, end of the pier, clairvoyant mediums. And so there's a lot of toing and froing and sort of nasty, bitchy comments. People love that, you know, in a safe environment. Yeah, and the, the 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 last series of the podcast, it was a great concept that it was all kind of based around this healing festival. Yeah, that they were all yeah. they, they all appeared at, and the fact that you know Clinton and Ramon were <laughs> stuck in a tent together. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, oh, well, well, we. Uh, I mean, that's very kind of you to say that about the healing festival. I think um, it was like recording War and Peace, you know, in the bloody <laughs> lockdown. It was. Can you imagine you trying to get everyone on? because we couldn't meet up and everyone did it on clean feed or one of these very, you know, clear um, lines down the internet, which is very difficult. You know, you really want to be in the studio interacting with each other. It's not the easiest thing. And then you get people on here whose microphones don't work and it's picking up on the internal mic of the laptop. And uh, it was really, really hard to do. And, I, for the series four, I'm just sticking with back in the studio. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is, I mean, people like the simplicity of very short sketches with like one or two people in it. I introduced a whole raft yeah. of different characters yeah. in the healing festival and it was all right. I mean, I think it's, I think it had tons of gags in it, uh, but I, I'm going back to what I did before now with series four. It was a proper story though, but I mean, even when you listen to yeah. it and there's all the background noise and it's like you're at yeah. a festival and you could hear all, you know, what was going oh, on glad. outside. And I'm glad you said that. For a while it was very difficult, but then I managed to get hold of very subtle, subtle recordings of, I mean, if you go online and you want oh, a crowd noise of disgust, you can get this download this stuff free, but yeah. it sounds like oh, you know, sort of stuff, no, no body of people ever made that noise. So I had to be really precise on how we got this stuff, and you know, little audience titters or the sound of mild displeasure from an audience, or you know, the stuff that really sounded real because you couldn't do it in the room with the actors; you just didn't have them. Yeah. So it was quite a hard thing to do. It was pretty exhausting. And that was the first lockdown. And now with the, the we're coming out of the, what are we on? The third lockdown? I don't know. <laughs> third or fourth lockdown. <laughs> um, I've got series four, which, I, which I've, I've also been doing remotely, obviously, but it's been easier with one or two people in the sketch. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, you've appeared in some of the best known comedy shows in recent years. Uh, Toast of London, you're in Peep Show, The Fast Show, many, many moons ago, uh, House of Fools with Vic and Bob and Dan, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, would you say that a lot of your work involves making connections? I've talked about this very... with a lot of other people and it's all about making connections with... Well, 
It's a very kind way of saying, would you say a lot of your work involves you turning up for just one day yeah, at a time? Yeah, it's yeah. I'd take it. Um, take, just take that one, Alex, you know. Yeah, I uh, making connections. Well, you know, I've sort of been around for so long now that I do know, I sort of know a lot of people. I'm so delighted. I just got asked to be in Steve Coogan's, uh, you know, Alan Partridge. Oh, wow. What's what's the latest one called? I can't remember, never remember what it's called. This oh, is the day. Track. No, whatever it's called. <laughs> Time is now. Time now, whatever it's called. This is now. Anyway, <laughs> the new one. And it was so nice to just be asked for once to not have to audition for something, which I think just happens just because I've been around for so long. Um, but yeah, I it's it, the, this, the other handy thing is that you do meet people along the way. And so when you get to doing podcasts and live shows on the internet or whatever, people, you can ask people and they hopefully happily give up their time because you have a bit of a friendship with them but um yeah i mean i i make no bones about it it's quite hard sometimes turning up for one day on something yeah which is an entire series yeah so i'm always tapping up in things and um it's sort of easier if you're part of the main cast and you get in the swing of things because apart from anything you go and sit in a porter cabin or a winnebago whatever and then they say, can we have you on set now? And then can we have the heads of department round here at rehearsal? And you're thinking, I can't cock this up. No one knows me. Yeah. Okay, okay. Can we hear the lines? And you're thinking, I've, I've been sat in a hotel last night <laughs> trying to learn these lines. You know, it's a tremendous pressure. Yeah. Everyone's looking at you. Who's this bloke? Yeah. He's coming. Is he going to be any good? Because we're used to this lot and they're quite quick. You know, you yeah. really don't want to be cocking it up. Uh, yeah. I've always found that a bit nerve wracking, but. Um, look, I'll happily do anything. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with a fast show. You know, you're going into an established. There's an established group of performers. Yeah, know, I mean that was a in. long time ago. It was. And, yeah, I, I sort of knew. Actually, that was right at the very start of the fast show. Yeah. So they weren't particularly. I don't think they knew each other that well. Yeah. But um, and I remember going to rehearsals there and um. I'd just done something with uh, Charlie Higson and Paul Whitehouse, which was a, a sitcom, which another thing that was going to explode and nothing happened again. Um, so I sort of knew them. And so I was sort of slightly more comfortable with that one. But uh, yeah, I mean, lovely to be in an iconic um, suit you sketch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like Johnny Depp and that were in there as well, weren't they? So, I mean, it was a... yeah. They didn't yeah, take any, yeah. they didn't just take any old, uh, you know, any old. Oh, person. exactly. Bloody right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was saying to other people like Vic and Bob seem to factor in a lot of comedians' careers. Obviously, yeah. uh, Bob featured a lot in Dan's career, obviously kind of mm. finding him for shooting stars and all that kind of stuff. But um, it does make you wonder whether there's this kind of six degrees of separation. You could probably link everyone yeah. in British comedy at the moment in I some shape or form. True, we're only a tiny island, aren't we? I mean, well, in the grand scheme of things, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, you can link everyone, I, I, I'm sure. I mean, Vic and Bob, you talk about them. I'm when I was in my early 20s watching Big Night Out, mm. I mean, to, to work with them, I mean, I'm so thrilled, and I've worked with them. You know, I've worked with Vic Reeves a few... Actually, I've worked with them both a few times in little sketches over the years. Uh, we did something called Monkey Trousers yeah. years ago with yeah. um, 
uh, Alistair McGowan and the like, which was great fun. Met them doing that. And um, I did this pilot I mentioned with Charlie Higson and Paul Whitehouse. Uh, it was called The Honeymoon's Over. And Vic, uh, Jim Moyer was in that, Vic Reeves. And then doing House of Fools. Um, oh, my God. It's like being with your heroes. Just yeah. an absolute thrill. And I always think their sort of surreal comedy is not necessarily... It, it makes me laugh hugely, but it's not something I can do. I, my sort of, I would love to be able to do that. I think if I, if I was a comedian, I'd love to be like them or Harry Hill. Yeah. But I just can't write that stuff. My brain doesn't work like that. I'm very much more traditional with here's, uh, uh, you know, here's the, here's the line, here's the setup, here's the middle bit, here's yeah. the punchline. But they, I mean, I love that. When that surreal comedy somehow strikes a truth, yeah. You know, when it comes out of somewhere and you go, oh, God, I can see why that's surreally brilliant. That is what really does it for me. Well, that was the thing, you know, like, as I said, watching Big Night Out for the first time, you were kind of like, oh, my God, these people are talking the same kind of language as me. Your parents oh, were yeah, looking yeah. at you going, what? What are you watching? Yeah, what is this? Yeah, I mean, the only thing is, I will say, that sort of surreal comedy has been going for centuries yeah, yeah 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 you know every every generation thinks they invented this kind of out of the box nutty stuff i'm sure my parents were thinking well we saw something like this with monty python yeah and before that they would say we saw something like this with um wilson keppel and betty yeah or you know these people going back in time uh so I'm, there's always been a sort of surreal thing and i think every generation thinks they own it but uh, i mean my son now shows me slightly oblique stuff from the internet and I'm going I don't see what is funny about that. <laughs> and it's got some surreal twist yeah yeah you know he's only doing the same as I did with my generation well don't you get this this is this yeah. is odd you know just because just because it's not rational and um so I kind of you know I That's get it. it I mean no one was doing that no one seemed to be doing that the time Vic and Bob first kind of came to public attention nobody was doing what they were doing, you know, all this weird, you know, no, no, surreal that maybe, stuff. Well, I suppose, where did it come out of? I mean, I, if you remember the sort of, uh, oh, you're, you're considerably younger than me, but in the sort of mid to late 80s, that kind of very right on, uh, politically correct Ben Elton style. Alexi Sale kind of thing. And yeah, and, you know, that was all sort of slightly political and um, on the nose. Mm. I suppose it was crying out for something that wasn't like that and that was completely left of centre. You know, but at the same time, I would started doing, um, I know it's a bit later than that, a bit later than that, but, you know, things like the 11 o'clock show and yeah. stuff. You know, suddenly we weren't seeing this kind of right on stuff. It was bending the rules a bit and being, being sort of, surreal and also and not being surreal with in case of that but being um postmodern and not yeah. and not sort of being so right on so yeah maybe it came out of that sort of time yeah no I mean you mentioned Harry Hill there I mean he's totally reinvented himself hasn't he you know when you look back to what he was doing in the early 90s he was just doing the most mental stuff you know, in his, his his live stages, and you know, I, I can't. The amount of times I saw him live, he's just incredible. And he kind yeah. of he totally reinvented himself. He's yes. now become this family. You've been framed, and all these kind of on uh, cooking shows and things. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad. I mean, it, it's lovely to have people who are funny like that. I mean, I never used to like, and I know this is sacrilege to say this, but the sort of Bob Monkhouse, cheesy, <laughs> um, shiny floor ITV crowd, Ted Rogers. I mean, it's nice that, and I mean, I before anyone cheers me down in flames, I know Bob <laughs> Monkhouse was a genius. I know he was a brilliant comedian. But sort of hosting those kind of shows in yeah. that cheesy manner, classic sort of game show host. It's lovely to have people like Harry Hill now. Yeah, it was of its time though, wasn't it? I suppose people are in say, I don't know, 50 years time, people will be looking back at what we're doing, what we're seeing now and going, oh my God, you know. Watching yeah, they'll robots. say Gordon Ramsay, Gordon <laughs> bloody Ramsay. Why were you having a, why was a chef hosting a quiz <laughs> show? So maybe we want to see a return to some kind of. Yeah. No, nah, it'll all be like uh, AI. It'll be like robots yeah. telling, telling jokes and stuff. Well, be like yeah, Max Headroom. That's a bloody good idea, isn't it? As a pitch that. You know, that could be a new. Hosting. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Very Bring funny. back Max Headroom, I say. Actually, funny. Sh- First of all, two things. Max Headroom was made by the prosthetics guy I mentioned earlier. Oh, really? Oh, How wow. funny. We should mention that in the same. Yeah, he did that. But the other thing is, if you ever remember the Peter Serafinowicz show, mm. he, which I did, he, uh, Peter, played a character called Michael Six, I think, who was a sort of, uh, you know, robot host, which was ingenious. So it has been thought of before, but only in a sketch format. Well, no, but we won't, we won't mention that. Maybe people will forget forget it was done exactly, exactly. Um, so let's talk a bit about uh, radio work now you've done a huge amount of radio work over there obviously Barry's Lunch Club Claire in the Community to name but a couple so I mean has the way that you work as an actor comedian mm. changed that much in the last year have you kind of had to find new ways to be creative uh yeah I mean I mean us doing this we're sort of au fait with it now, setting it up, setting the microphone up. I have yeah. to buy all this stuff. Yeah. I've had a, uh, a, you know, my garage now I use as a sort of studio. Um, yeah, I've really had to, I like anyone, what's the expression? Necessity is the mother of invention. Just because, what could you do? Uh, so, and I don't think it'll ever change now. People have realised actually you can do this from your house. So I've had to do that. As I say, you know, I, there's one thing I, I've really, really struggled with, which is a real pain for my family, is sitting still and not working. Yeah. Mainly because growing up, my parents, you know, they went to work at nine in the morning. They came back at five. I was just always brought up with this thing. I've always felt mildly guilty about doing any of this for a living. So I just can't, I'm a bit of a workaholic. So I've spent this time in lockdown. I can't bear that feeling of lethargy. Nothing's happening. Oh, I might go for another walk now. <laughs> uh, you know, I've done the bloody whole series of the podcast. Yeah. I've recorded these live shows, been writing my, my live show for touring, doing all sorts of things. Now nearly finished the second series. Um, I just, I don't know any other way. And actually, I don't say that as kind of false modesty. I don't want to be like this particularly, but I just can't bear sitting still watching the clock tick. You know, this idea that, oh, we just got to stick it out, the lockdown. We just got to, you know, not long now. I'm thinking, yeah. this is my life. <laughs> I know. 
This is my actual life ticking away. Yeah. I don't want to sort yeah. of lose a few days and just put up with it. You know, I'm 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 53 now. It's bloody valuable to me. This stuff. <laughs> What's so the thing? I've the last to... year, the last year, we've kind of lost. You know, I mean, obviously, oh, we've we've still been able to be kind of vaguely productive with technology yeah. moving as it yeah. has, but it must be a killer for creative people like yourself. Uh, you know, yeah. comedians and actors and. Well, I think genuinely you if you can i mean if you can and i know not everyone's got the money but if you can afford to buy a mic and a sort of interface box and some speakers and do your own stuff you know you you have to you're obliged to do that what is the point and you know if you were the sort of person just sitting around waiting for your agent to phone you it's not going to (laughs) happen and that, that seemed obvious to me fairly early you know, you just have to sort of, and I mean, it's not like you, you can't ignore the fact that there are, there is the technology to create stuff. Whether you can monetize it is another thing, but you've got to, you've just got to sort of roll your sleeves up in some way or other, which I think a lot of people do, but it must be difficult for a generation of actors, probably just slightly ahead of me, who were used to waiting around for a voice agent to phone or a acting agent to phone i mean i i can't think of anything worse than wasting your life waiting for that to happen yeah like the edward foxes and judy dench's and uh you know those kind of people. Yeah. To, to edward fox and judy dench i'm not accusing you of being useless maybe they don't have to maybe they, they don't, probably have don't. To. i'd say they don't have to do anything these days no 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 people will come to them they'll always come to those people yeah, but I mean, um, Patreon as well has been a, a a great little tool for a lot of uh, a lot of podcasters. Yeah. A lot of people seem to be turning to Patreon now as a, you know, a way of monetizing. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's not a it's not a a huge money spinner, but I suppose no. it's nice to have that little connection, that connection with your fans. Uh, yeah, I mean, it look it does earn a little bit of money but i think you have to keep topping it up and you have to keep giving people stuff which i'm a little bit guilty of not doing um i don't charge very much money god uh <laughs> so yeah uh that's good thank you for reminding me uh yeah and i think some people what's really really kind about some people is that they get it that you're struggling you can't go out and do a gig so for their three pounds a month they don't mind subbing you a little bit. I've heard that before. It's the same with the people who are holding on to tickets to my show. They could have cashed them in, but I think people understand what 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 can I what am I supposed to do about it? I can't even get yeah. on stage. Yeah. So um, yeah, Patreon is really 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 handy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even watching the way the way you and Dan, uh, you know, do the Angelos and Barry videos, it's all it's all very made. Yeah. I know. Well, you know. we are particularly useless at technology. <laughs> I think Dan is slightly worse than me, and I'm. He really seems to be. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think also, oddly, he has a bit of a problem with bandwidth or something in his house. You wouldn't believe the efforts we go to. We've got a phone propped up to do it on FaceTime, and then you sort of with the headphones on, and then you're recording on this equipment. Yeah. Oh, it's hellish. Yeah, and Dan normally has his Zoom <laughs> in front of him, you know. <laughs> I know. 
know. But it's great, you know. It all it all adds to the it adds to the experience at the end of the day. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, it'd be nice to do something that's. I mean, maybe further down the line, you know, it's just going to get easier to operate this stuff, and we it won't look quite so charmingly amateurish, you know, what we're doing. But right for now, people are forgiving. Yeah. Oh, we've talked. Uh, Georgia, your your lovely daughter, she's doing very well with her acting, following in her dance yeah. footsteps. Oh, thank you for mentioning her. That's in nice. uh, the Alienist, she was very good yep. in the second series. Yes, so, yes. And her music career as well. Yeah, my daughter Georgia Low Glow, for anyone out there, she's an artist. Glow G L O W E. Uh, she uh, honestly, she joined my acting agent. And I was thinking, you know, look, trying to warn her <laughs> of the, the perils of this business. She's seen me so often in my life with my head in my hands, wondering what this is all about. Goes for like a job, gets it. Spent six months in Hungary filming, you know, in Budapest for The Alienist with Dakota Fanning and uh, what's his name? Evans. Oh, Luke Evans. Yeah. Luke Evans. And, um, yeah, so so she is an actor now, and I feel very sorry for her because, of course, it was great for her, and she got a singing career, and it was all going very, very well, and it stopped dead for her. Yeah. And so I'm hoping she can get back out there and start performing again and production start again with TV. So, yeah, she's she's very, very good. And, and, and it's not just me saying that as her dad. I think if I was watching her auditioning and I was thinking, God almighty... I think by now I'd have said this isn't the career. For yeah, you. don't do it. But, uh, she's very <laughs> natural, very natural, and you know she sort of does have an advantage in that she doesn't wander around like the party's about to start. You know, she kind of gets it that it's a career and it's not not very glamorous. Yeah, yeah, nothing but glamorous she, about. She's it. a good all rounder though, isn't she? She's obviously got a lot of strings to her bow. She, yeah, she she does. Yeah, yeah, she's great and. Um, I wonder whether one day she'll have to choose between one or the other acting or singing. I don't know, but uh, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's nice good. to keep a foot in a foot in both ponds, I suppose. Yeah, and I think she she's a really great singer. She's always been a great singer, and I'm not particularly good with music. I've never had a. I mean, I tried to sing. I've sung in various <laughs> things, but you know, she can actually sing properly. Sing so. Yeah. Oh, we liked Barry's Barry's Christmas single that he released. <laughs> I didn't realise I was going to have to... I did have to sing a bit in that, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, I played it on my radio show, so, you know. I was, remember. There was a lot of people... I remember. A lot of people heard it, so... But it oh, went, good. It good, went down good. very well. Um, so, I mean, who would have been your comedy heroes growing up? It's It seems to be a very generational thing. A lot of people will say Python... And then people of yeah. another certain age would say the goons. Um, so well, would you would you have been like the Ronnies or? Yeah, the Ronnies. Two Ronnies. Ronnie Barker is probably my favourite. I mean, when I think, I often, I've said this before to people, you know, when you think about Fletcher in mm. Porridge, oh, man. part of me genuinely can't believe that guy didn't exist as a yeah. person. Yeah. It's so bloody warm, endearing three-dimensional maybe it's just growing up with that and that was on television your sort of 
the artifice of it somehow bleeds in and you think it was part of your history and it was a real person. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I knew the Barkers in Pinner because they grew up, they were from oh, wow. around our way and um, Adam Barker, his son, who, we, you know, yeah, things went a bit few, wrong for him. Few issues, yeah. Uh, yeah, he he used to go to the studio school in Pinner where I went and uh, he was in my drama group and what have you. So I, and, and he was like a sort of local celebrity as well in Pinner. So he was absolutely one of my heroes. Uh, Richard Briers was one of my comedy yes. heroes, who I worked with with yeah. Renaissance quite a lot. Another fella, his um, his mom taught my brother at play group <laughs> at Hatch End. So there's all these kind of local connections. It's all connections. I, yeah, but I mean, I think those are my favourite comedy actors of the time. You know, it was nothing particularly sort of odd. And, you know, there was no... Uh, nothing strange about my taste they were very mainstream as i said mike yarwood was one of yeah. our heroes a brilliant impressionist yeah. and um but you know my brother and i were, were i mean we also liked the python stuff and then when we got into our teens we liked like the dangerous brothers yeah and we had that big album do you ever have that we are most amused album <laughs> which was all those people, Alexi Sale, and that sort of alternative group who yeah, were coming yeah. through in the early 80s. The Secret Policeman's Ball as well was another. All that. Yeah, absolutely. One. We had yeah. all that stuff. Not the Nine O'Clock News yeah. albums. We really loved that. Rowan Atkinson we loved. And then the Young Ones, Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, you yeah. know, th that sort of stuff, you know. And then Vic and Bob. So, honestly, I... I um, those people are absolute heroes. You know, I meet lots. I've met lots of actors in my time. And I used to do a lot with Kenneth Branagh's Renaissance Theatre Company. And I met, you know, Hollywood actors, big Hollywood actors I've met. But those, I mean, I think, you know, Vic and Bob and if I got a chance to work with them again or Ronnie Barker and Richard Briers, those, I can't work with them anymore. But you know what I mean? Those were my absolute heroes. The biggest thrill to work with those guys. Yeah. Oh, Vic and Bob are filming their new film this summer, uh, The Glove. So get, get in on that. Get okay. On. okay. Get yourself in on that. You sound like my parents. I said, oh, I'll, I'll put my name down. I'll go and queue up. Easier said than done. You know, give Bob a ring and say, you know, why am I not? Why have you oh, not phoned God. me? Where have you been? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, talk about Ronnie Barker. Were you in an episode of uh, Still Open All Hours? I was. Yeah, I was. That's right. I that when you know it was it was David Jason mm. in my day. Uh, no, I went up there to Doncaster to film. Uh, I mean, that was thrilling because in about I remember it was the first day they ever had the London Marathon, probably nineteen eighty one ish. Uh, my nan took us to see. Uh, open all hours being filmed oh, at wow. BBC Television Centre. That was thrilling. That was another thing that absolutely gave me the bug. You know, you see cameras there and this lovely set, beautiful set that looks like the real thing. So it was sort of thrilling to then be in the remake of Open All Hours in whatever that was, 2013 or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to thrilling. even work with David Jason, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's such a legend. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that was good. And, uh, Met a few friends there, uh, Johnny Vegas, who yeah. then came to perform at my um, hundred club gig. You know, there was yeah. a lot. There were a lot of quite famous actors now that are that were in the new series. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it was deeply thrilling to do that. And I think I have a feeling we were the last people ever to film in that studio in Teddington. 
it could have been it could have been uh so yeah lovely love i mean i honestly i've i've had me finger in various pies with you know iconic shows i'm, mm. I'm delighted to say that yeah Even if no. it was just for one episode i know i know but it's you know one episode is better than uh better than no I episodes so. but i suppose um, so. i'm always slightly embarrassed though people say Oh, I saw you on Ab Fab, and I think, yeah, yes. I played a bloke who put up a Christmas tree, had like two lines, and then disappeared. Oh, you, know? you always look so young, you know. When everyone puts up these little screenshots of you oh, in like the God. fast show, fast show, you, look, you looked about twelve. Well, that was twenty years ago. Or something, wasn't it? <laughs> no, more than that, twenty-five years. Ago. Twenty-five years. Well, they did. Yeah, it was an anniversary, wasn't it? Uh, quite recently of the fast show. Yeah. 20, 25 years. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've been going. For a long, long time. But yeah, Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Where's he now? Do you know what I mean? Where's exactly? Where's Where Branagh now? Where is he? Yeah, um, no, Kenneth Branagh. He, you know, he he was very good to me. You know, I used to be his stand-in when I first started, and then he put me in, you know, various films of his. So uh, I have a lot to thank him for for as well. He's a good guy, isn't he? You know, you look at all the stuff he's he's done. You know, he's over in Dublin quite regularly obviously he's got the irish connection but uh um, yeah. he's, he's still pumping out the pumping out the work isn't he you know yeah no he's he's really good and he was very loyal to me you know we did another country mm. when i was 14 and then he what did we do i was going to oh i went and did a, a show at the edinburgh festival in 1990 and he was up there with renaissance theater company and he came with emma thompson to see my show and he said, would you like to join Renaissance? I was like, yes, I would. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he took me under his wing again there. And I'd love to work with him again sometime. But uh, who knows? One day, uh, where, where would you be now if you'd said no? Well, exactly. Yeah, no, he was really good. I mean, I, what actually happened at the time, this is true. Went to see him in his dressing room at the King's Theatre in Edinburgh. And he said, you know, I just, I just graduated from Leicester Polytechnic. And he said, what are your plans? And I said, well, I might be doing a theatre and education thing for Birmingham Rep. And he went, okay. And he said, do you not want to join us? I went, yes, I would. And he said, what's your immediate problem? I said, well, I wanted an agent. He said, okay, this is a list of people we like to use. These are good agents. And then he said, I'm just going off to do a film which was dead again in the States. No. Yeah. Try and get uh, an agent. If you can't, phone me, reverse the charges, and I'll sort you out with an agent. So in that meeting with him, I'd gone from <laughs> T.I. perfectly good, I'm not decrying that, to you know going to work with his company the following spring, him sorting me out an agent. Yeah. And you know, we, we, we ended up doing Uncle Vanya, you know, a few months later. So, you know, he really, really kicked things off for me. So, so kind. He had a sort of a really, um, you know, a lot of confidence in that he's got sort of Prince Charles to be the patron of uh, Renaissance Theatre Company. He was a young man, put out his biography to finance the theatre company, which actually I know nowadays people bring out a bloody autobiography when they're three years old. But, you know, at the time people thought, God, that's. It's a bit precocious of him. You know, what's he got to tell us? Yeah. And, you know, got those huge actors to be in Renaissance Theatre Company. And then he got people like Robert De Niro in Frankenstein. (laughs) So good luck to him. Hats off to him because he's not the sort of Oxbridge elite. I know people like to say he's part of that kind of lovey-dom. But he's just a a, a lad from Belfast. So I take my hat to his industry, you know. 
So let's talk a little bit about music now. Have you had any like great musical loves in your life, bands or artists that you've kind of you fell in love yes. with? I really, re- the only band I've been absolutely obsessed with was when I was 18, and that was the House Martins. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, I loved the House Martins, Paul Heaton, Stan Cullimore, of course, Fatboy Slim. Uh, yeah, Norman and, Cook. Um, Norman Cook. And, you know, I, I loved them. There was something about that time was very precious to me. And I used to dress like them and I sort of had a flat top in those days. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I really loved that. I sort of loved everything about them. I loved, I mean, now it's slightly embarrassing, but they were sort of very left wing and left wing and right on about yeah, everything. Yeah. And they were sort of fun and irreverent and they looked young. And I just liked the style. <laughs> I liked the sort of, what would you call it? Charity shop yeah, chic about yeah. them. Yeah. And then I wasn't so mad about Beautiful South, really. It didn't kind of do it the same way. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I love them. And, and London Nil Hull 4 is one of my favourite albums. And then I went to college and the Smiths I loved very, very yeah. much. Uh, so and then and then actually no, it's not the only band I really loved. That following that was the Sundays. Do you remember? The Sundays? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Harriet Wheeler, I love them. I love them. I, I'm to be honest, if it's embarrassing, my my iTunes is full <laughs> of eighties and early nineties stuff. It's almost like nothing since has yeah, um, yeah, yeah. impinged upon me. So I really like that jingly jangly shoegazing sort of melodic beautiful melodies uh everything but the girl i used to love back in the day that those were really that was about it really i mean i used to play in bands who were not particularly jingly jangly but um yeah those those are absolutely my favorites i think yeah i mean so were you musical when you were when you were younger yeah my dad you know i my brother played the drums. I played the piano. We uh-huh. used to, you know, with the talent contest. Yeah, yeah. At the Wolves Cornetto. It was a part of our act was me playing the piano and him playing the drums. I don't play the keyboard at all now, which is silly because I should do really. But um, yeah, we're a very musical family in that way. But my my dad was sort of, he was a semi-professional, you know, used to play the dance band. And back in the day in the 50s when bebop first happened, he was a you know, he was always out playing jazz. He was a sort of jazz musician at heart. And there was a sort of snobbery about music in our house that jazz was absolutely <laughs> everything. Which my brother also chimed in with, and then he got into rock music. But I think my, the sort of music I liked was very, seen as crap, you know. So I've spent a long time, you know, just assuming my musical taste is a load of old rubbish because it wasn't jazz or it wasn't classical or it wasn't rock. It was this kind of fey... you know lukewarm rubbish but um yeah so so that was it a lot of snobbery about music in my house yeah what was the age gap between you and your brother oh very very what is it 18 months or something less oh wow yeah so no messing about the thickest thieves yeah yeah we were great great mates growing up yeah he lives in denmark now oh wow he plays plays the drums in the evening and he's a printer during the day um, any live bands that kind of stuck in your live gigs you've been to that stuck in your memory? I went to see Mark Armand the, yeah. um, at the Hammersmith Palais. 
which I really loved back in the day. And I think it must have really stuck with me only because I was only about 15. I think I went on my own for some reason. But doing that, going to things on my own, I mean, going to football <laughs> on my own. I don't know why. It's very odd. I would never do that now. But um, yeah, and the House Martins at the Kilburn Ballroom oh, in wow. 1986-ish, yeah. I think that was, supported by one of my other favourite bands, The Proclaimers. Really? So yeah, yeah, and I, I, I loved it. So, um, yeah, no, I don't, not really. I didn't go to masses and masses of gigs. I tell you what, I, I saw Morrissey at Earl's Court. That You know, he had that album live at Earl's Court, yeah. which was sensational. Yeah. I just love that. Although I've gone off him now because he does <laughs> stupid things, uh, which is a shame. Absolute shame. I just... You know, that that's really the thing. As a, as a live performer, he's a you know live performer and a songwriter. He's incredible. You know, but he it's is, just all the other stuff I, he's got going on. Yeah, you know, I don't want to pay to see him live now. I sort of wonder who. I don't know. It just depresses me that I don't want to hear all that crap. <laughs> just listen to George's uh, Georgia singles. Yeah, my Georgia. Yeah, Glow is my favourite musician now, and she's playing the Notting Hill Arts Club in. I think it's October. I can't remember, but uh, or September. No, well, she's playing that, so I'm hoping that's gonna go well for us. Get a bit of advertising, sell a few tickets. Yeah, that's well. Glow, Glow <laughs> at Notting Hill Arts Club, and I think it's September. Look it up, please. Is she releasing any more music? I know she's re- released she a few singles. Always, she's always, always in that modern way. I can't keep up with. She sees you know, producers, she records stuff down the line. She's always putting stuff out. And I'm hoping that, um, I think she will have be releasing a new album or something soon. I'm not oh, that's, if the act- that's if the acting doesn't get in the way. Well, yeah, let's see. Let's see. I, I, at the moment, her first love is the music very much, I think. Yeah, that's good. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me, Alex, today. It's been lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks. I hope people are interested. 